Brad already uh, just said a, a thank you and, uh, and invited everyone to just uh, say thank you for Hope using her, uh, her gifts here. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Hope is only 12 years old. Uh, and in a lot of places, uh, people are just, uh, young people might just be sort of left to, you know, just sort of sit back and wait till you get a little bit older uh, to take on some leadership. Um, and I think it's an extraordinary uh, testament uh, to Lamb of God and their desire to raise up the next generation that at 12 years old, Hope's sitting here doing a children's message, uh, which I think uh, connects very beautifully with uh, this topic of discipleship that we've really been digging into uh, for most of this year. Uh, discipleship is really just about that. It is raising up the next generation. It is forming uh, one another and the church doing what Christ has called it to do uh, by raising up people uh, to continue the work of the gospel. And, and Hope, I know, has sought out uh, other women in the congregation, uh, like Christy and Vanessa, uh, to, uh, to really do that for her. Uh, so you can give thanks for that, and also give thanks for the fact that even if you think you have lousy pastors, at least they have great wives. Um, <laughs> so uh, so you, you at least didn't get in a, a completely raw deal with us. Um, but this idea of raising up uh, the next generation also uh, connects pretty well with what we at Lamb of God really desire our, our vacation Bible school program to do or to be, uh, which is why we've renamed it our Family Bible Adventure, because we want this to be an opportunity for us to walk through and journey through the scriptures together. And uh, we've tried to be intentional about doing that uh, in what we've chosen to preach on. Uh, we figure that dancing together before worship was a great start. Uh, but we said, hey, why don't we also uh, go through the story that we're going to be taking a look at during that week? Um, I feel like there should be some sort of statement about, you know, the church that dances together, advances together, something like that. Um, but one of, the, one of the ways that we're trying to encourage everyone to journey through this story together is by giving out a reading plan. So you'll see on the very front of your bulletin, there's uh, reading assignments for the week. Just a, a quick show of hands. I promise I'm not keeping track. I'm not going to tell on you uh, if you didn't. Um, but just did anyone get a chance to read through uh, the readings for last week? See, see a few hands here and there. Uh, if, you read through, uh, if you read through it last week or if you've read through this story before, you might have noticed that there's some pretty scandalous stuff in this story. Right? Not only is, is Joseph, this sort of snot-nosed little brother, sold into slavery... Uh, after that, we have this sort of break from the Joseph narrative where we take a look at the life of one of his older brothers, Judah. And we find that uh, Judah winds up having sex with his daughter-in-law when she's disguised as a prostitute. And you might read that and you think, what on earth is this story doing in the Bible? Right? And then we return to, to the narrative of Joseph and, and his life. And as he's in the house of Potiphar, he's wrongly accused of, of having inappropriate relations uh, with his boss's wife. Right? So we have scandal after scandal after scandal. And amidst all these scandals, I think there's something important for us to note. And it is the activity of God in these passages. See, throughout the rest of Genesis, God is very visible he, he is very audible. He speaks plainly to Abraham. There's visions. Uh, there's miracles. He even has a wrestling match with Jacob. 
God is plainly seen, but then we enter into the life of Joseph, and God sort of passes away from the story. Now, since we're all good Lutherans here, the first question we should ask is, what does this mean? What, what does it mean that suddenly God's behavior seems a little bit different? But you see, I think this shift is, is intentional. And I think it's intended to teach us something very central about our faith, and it is this truth that even when God is hidden, He is still present. Even when God is silent, He is still active. Right? Take, for example, that story of Judah and Tamar. Judah has sex with his daughter-in-law when she's disguised as a prostitute. He impregnates her, and she bears twins. Now, if you flash forward to Matthew chapter 1, where we have the genealogy of Jesus, right? we know that David is from the house of Judah, and we know that Jesus is a descendant of David. But do you know who else is a part of that genealogy? There's a man by the name of Perez... Right? Whom Judah fathered by Tamar. Even in the sin of Judah, God was acting to bring about the salvation of the world. God may be silent, but he is not absent. He's not inactive, if you'll pardon the double negative. God is still working, even when he's hidden, even when he's silent. And we see that also here in the life of Joseph as well. As we turn back to his life in Genesis chapter 39, we see that things have changed a tad for Joseph. No longer is he just a slave in Egypt, but he's actually risen to a position of power in Potiphar's house. And as he's in Potiphar's house, we see David in three separate situations. And in all three of these situations, David could have been tempted to reject God, but instead remains faithful to God. And I want to take a look at how does Joseph do that? Why does Joseph do that? How does Joseph remain faithful to God regardless of his circumstances? Because there's something that I've become increasingly convinced of, and that is we do not get to, we do not get to choose our circumstances in life. We, we don't get to choose the situations that we're born in. We, we don't get to choose how people act around us. But what we do get to choose is how we respond in the midst of those circumstances. And I believe that for us as disciples of Jesus, our call is to respond faithful to God, regardless of the circumstances. And so we see the way that Joseph does that. So first, Joseph has arisen to this position of power. And here's what we read about Joseph in Genesis 39, verse 2. It says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So Joseph here, he arises to power, 
in Potiphar's house. So Joseph's not just a slave anymore. Joseph is now the foreman of Potiphar's affairs. He's, he's the project manager. He's the, he's the chief operating officer in Potiphar's house. Now, as Joseph arises to power, he very easily could have used that power for selfish ends. Perhaps maybe he could have worked out some of that family baggage that he had in his past by wielding that power oppressively over the people that he was placed in charge of. But Joseph doesn't do that. Instead, what Joseph does is he uses his position of authority to be a blessing to Potiphar's house, to be a blessing to those that he's been put in charge of. See, I think this is one of the central things that distinguishes us as, as Christians, as people of God, from the world. Because we have very, two very different pictures of how we use power, how we use authority, how we use the work that we do. You see, the world's concept of power and authority is that it is to be used for selfish ends. It's used to benefit myself above all else. But you see, God's concept of power stands in stark contrast to that. As God's people, we are called to be people who use our power, who use authority, who use our vocations in service to others, to be a blessing to others. I remember one of the places that I've, uh, I've seen this is a family friend of mine. Uh, he's a, a small business owner, and he has this business partner who uh, who is not a believer, and they have two very different ways of going about business. And, and it really came to a head once as they had this employee who he was going through some intense family struggles uh, that was very negatively impacting his work performance. Uh, he, had a, he had a daughter uh, who, who tried to, to take her own life, actually. And, and this friend of mine, his, his business partner was ready to say, you know what, like, he's done. Well, let's, 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 let's cut ties now. He, he's hurting our business. He, he's not up to snuff. But this family friend of mine, he just said, no, we've like, we got to watch out for this guy. And, and so they worked out a deal where that he would continue to work for him until he could find better, uh, a better work situation that would better fit his, uh, his current life circumstances. Uh, continue to take care of this man and, and help his family because his concept of power and his concept of authority was not just to be used towards his own selfish ends, but to be a benefit to the people that he worked with, to be a benefit to his employees, to be a benefit to his clients. Because I believe that his concept of authority was shaped by God's concept of authority. He responded to this situation by saying, how has God treated me? And how does that call me to treat the people that work for me? I mean, just think about that for a moment. Think about how God has treated us. He's in that position of power and authority. He very likely and very justifiably could just leave us in the dust. But instead, what our God has done is he laid aside his power. He entered into our broken flesh to bear our sin, to die at the hands of wicked men who abuse their power, also that we could be the recipients of the gift of his love, so that we could be a part of his family again. The way that we approach 
authority. The way that we approach power is all shaped by the God who has used his power not to oppress us, not to serve himself, but to rescue us from sin and death. And that's precisely how we see Joseph using his power here in this text, to be a blessing to the world around him. See, this is precisely why we need good people who are serving in a variety of vocations, not just in the church. I mean, that's a fine path. That's the one that I chose and was called to. But we need devout and faithful business owners and lawyers and politicians, people who are going to go about their business seeking to be a blessing to the people around them. Now, even though Joseph uses his power faithfully to serve those around him, we see him enter into this second situation, the situation of temptation, at the hands of someone who abuses their power. And that's Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife, this woman in a very wealthy household, very likely used to getting everything that she wanted. And it just so happens that here in Genesis, the thing that she wants is Joseph. We're told that Joseph is a, is a very handsome man. And so Potiphar's wife is very forward and, and very direct and very forcefully comes up to Joseph and says, come lie with me, come have sex with me. But Joseph refuses time and time again. And notice here in Genesis why it says that Joseph refuses. There's, there's two reasons in particular. Verse 8, But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So very simply, that first reason is Joseph refuses because this is Potiphar's wife. He says, how could I violate the trust of this man who has put all these things in my charge? How could I do that? But notice that that's not the only reason that Joseph refuses. He calls this thing a great sin and wickedness against God. It's not simply his respect for Potiphar that causes Joseph to refuse. It's his love for God. You know, one of the things that I, I think we often think that resisting temptation in general, and, and resisting sexual temptation in particular, is really just a matter of willpower. That, that if, I, if I try hard enough and if I get my thinking straight and, and apply the right discipline, well, then I can resist temptation. But see, I don't really think that's what's going on here. That for Joseph, his resistance of temptation, it's not simply right thinking, but it's actually right loving. That overcoming sinful desire is, is not about decreasing our desire, but it's actually about our proper desires. See, I, I think that, that Descartes actually got it wrong, that we're not primarily thinking things, but we are very much loving things. That we are creatures who are intimately and deeply shaped by the desires that we have. And so to overcome temptation, to overcome sinful desires, really a matter of discovering that greater, more wonderful, more beautiful desire. Uh, in his books, in his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis puts it like this. 
It says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. I think of it like this. Uh, just before uh, worship this morning, I was uh, speaking with a few people about my love for donuts. <laughs> right? and, and I know donuts are not good for me. And, and good fruits and vegetables, right? kale and quinoa have much more healthy benefits than donuts do. But I'm far too easily pleased that overcoming temptation is, is about discovering something that is much more eternal. A joy that is not fleeting but lasting. You see, I think that for us to be able to overcome sexual temptation, to be able to overcome any temptation, is about discovering the story of the love that our God has for us. And the more that we discover the kind of love that would drive Christ to die on the cross for us. The story that says that you are our God's utmost desire. That it is that truth and that it's coming to know that story is what can empower us to overcome temptation. It's not just about thinking straight. It's about discovering that we are the object of God's deep, deep affection. That Christ, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross and scorned its shame. That joy set before him was you and me. May it be that truth that helps us to overcome desire. Now, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that we can do everything right. We can, we can overcome temptation, but we don't necessarily receive the promise that that means things will always go well for us because we see that's precisely the opposite of what happens to Joseph. Right? Joseph is faithful to God in the face of temptation. He resists the advances of Potiphar's wife. But she falsely accuses him, and in his anger, Potiphar throws him into prison. Now, certainly in prison, Joseph would have been tempted to despair. Right? I mean, certainly, at some point, Joseph had to think, God, I did everything right. I did what you asked me to do, but yet, I'm still in jail. But once again, that's not Joseph's response. Joseph is able to remain faithful in prison, and, and I, here's why. Verse 20, Joseph's master took him and put him in, in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The thing that sustains Joseph and keeps him from despair when he's in prison is that steadfast, covenant love of God. It is Joseph's trust that this God has made promises to me and my fathers, and regardless of my present circumstances, I trust 
that he is still working to accomplish those promises. It is that steadfast love, the promises of God, sustain Joseph when he is unjustly imprisoned. You know, one of the, the foundational stories uh, for this truth uh, is, is the story of Job. Right? You, you maybe are familiar with the story of Job. Job uh, was a devout and faithful man, yet God, for some reason, lets the enemy take everything from Job. And when Job was tempted to despair, he refuses. He, he laments his suffering. He, he seeks that God would show himself just. And in Job chapter 14, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that the one who will raise me again lives. And I know he's going to prove himself just. And I know that at the last, I will stand on the earth. And even after my skin and my flesh has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Job trusts that even if it demands the resurrection of the dead, that one day he will see God prove himself just. And we see that same thing happen for Joseph. Joseph remains faithful in prison. And in fact, it was because of prison that, jo or that Joseph was able to accomplish, accomplish God's great purposes. Joseph meets several of the king's prisoners he interprets a few dreams and suddenly he rises to power and is able to enact God's salvation for that entire region, rescuing them from famine. You see, here's the beautiful thing, is we have something that's even better than Joseph had. Something better than even Job got. We have the sure and certain promise of God's faithfulness to us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That resurrection that has been promised to us has been made known in his son Jesus. And we're promised that we get that same resurrection when he comes again. That's the faithfulness. That's the hope. That's the promise that sustains us. Whether it be in power, temptation, whether it be in the prison of despair and injustice, may God's faithfulness to you cause you to remain faithful to Him. Regardless of your circumstances, may you cling to those promises of God. And you, may you remain faithful to Him in every single thing that you do. Amen?